Well, good morning. It, it is so good to see you guys. It's great to be back. Arlene and I loved uh, being here this summer for a few weeks, and it was like old home weeks. It really was like for us coming home, and great to see some, some longtime friends and meet some new folks. And as we were talking with people after the services, and Shin, I'll be back in the back after today as well. Uh, I heard from you regarding when I was here many years ago, regularly teaching, and I got a number of requests of, from you about, hey, would you uh, t talk about this again? And actually, two of the most mentioned items during the summer that you guys asked me to repeat, I, I'm going to mention them both this morning. One of them is about something that occurred on July the 2nd, 1982. His name was Larry Walters. He was a truck driver in North Hollywood, California. Had always been dreaming of being a pilot. Always wanted to, to fly a plane, but just things never worked out to enable him to do that. Uh, so he just was kind of coasting, but when he was 33 years old, he decided to make a change. And he and his girlfriend went down to the local Army-Navy surplus store and bought 45 weather balloons. These are not just these party balloons. These are not, you know, six feet in diameter uh, weather balloons, just heavy duty. Then they went over to a toy store and rented some helium canisters, went by the hardware store, got some nylon cord, stopped by Sears and bought a lawn chair, one of those lawn chairs that has the sturdy wooden arms, you know. Went back to his backyard and proceeded to assemble a very interesting contraption. They attached his lawn chair by, with two nylon cords to the bumper of his car. Then they anchored a number of other jugs with sand in it for ballast. Then they proceeded to inflate these weather balloons. They got 42 of them inflated, all attached to the lawn chair, because here was the idea. He was gonna sit in this lawn chair and they were gonna cut the cords. He was gonna lazily float up into the sky and get a view of the terra firma that he had never gotten before and that he had always wanted. So he sat in, he had the supplies already, he had packed a lunch, he had a camera, he had a CB radio and a BB gun on his lap. I mean, this is just brilliant. I mean, so he's going to regulate his altitude, was his thought, all true story, regulate his altitude by shooting balloons one at a time, and that way he could lower down. So he thought he'd float lazily up, then get blown over to the Mojave Desert, and then come down when he was ready to go. Everything was going really perfectly according to plan until they cut the first cord that was attaching the lawn chair to the bumper. Because when they cut that cord, the amount of pressure and torque from those 42 balloons broke the second cord, it snapped. Now the next thing that happened could be described in a number of ways. Floating lazily up would not be one of the ways you would describe it. He shot out of his backyard like a rocket and didn't, didn't level off until he was over 15,000 feet up. Now the reason we know it was 15,000 feet is because a pilot for a TWA airline flight was on his approach to Los Angeles International Airport and looked out his window. <laughs> and he radioed the control tower. Uh, tower, yeah, this is TWA flight, whatever. Uh, you're not gonna believe this, but there's a guy in a lawn chair with a gun in his lap right outside my window. 
And, you know, Larry had not regulated any altitude. He was scared to death. He was gripping the arms of his chair uh, for, like, nobody's business. And now uh, word gets, gets to get around. All the authorities find out about this. News stations. Finally, Larry gets so cold because being three miles up, he, uh, in, you know, 15,000 feet, finally shoots a couple of balloons and it begins to lower down. But instead of going out to the Mojave Desert, he went to Long Beach, got tangled in some telephone, uh, some power lines. He didn't get electrocuted because the lines were nylon and plastic, uh, but the fire department had to sever the power lines, cutting off power to Long Beach for about 20 minutes to get the guy down. And everybody's waiting on him. The FAA, they're ready to arrest him. People are asking the FAA, what are you going to arrest him for? They said, we don't know. We just know he needs to be arrested. Um, you can't take away the guy's pilot's license because he doesn't have one. So they were going to figure something out. But as he was being carted off by the police to a squad car, a news reporter got a microphone in his face and said, Mr. Walters, Mr. Walters, why in the world would you, would you do such a thing? And he looked at them like it was the most stupid question in the world. And the most obvious answer, he looked at him and said, well, a man just can't sit around. I love that. The problem is it's not true. People sit around all the time. Not the Larry Walters of the world, but a lot of us just sit around. Here at Northland, we're involved in this series called Hashtag Kingdom Legacy. We're talking about making investments in that which matters, in that which is going to last. And last week, uh, we talked about investing in the church, and Pastor Joel walked us through the investment of relationships. We really finished the service dedicating ourselves to investing in relationships that will build the church. Not just big church, but personal church, distributed churches. Now, this week, we're going to talk about investing in the progress of the gospel. And Northland's doing that, but we want to learn how to do it even more. But here's the sad reality. So many individuals and tons of churches don't invest in the progress of the gospel. We just sit around. We just observe. Church is a spectator thing. The gospel is a spectator sport. And it's tragic because of what our communities are missing out on, but also because of what we're missing out on. So why? Why don't we invest more in the gospel being progressed, being, being spread? Why don't we invest more in the progress of the gospel? All right, I'm going to get to that question, but first, I need to take you to an intersection of two streets in the Midwest. East Kirkwood Avenue and Indiana Avenue intersect on the western border of Indiana University in downtown Bloomington, Indiana. And if you go to that intersection, it won't take you long to see one of those cast metal historical markers. You know, they're black with gold lettering. You've seen them in a number of places about something significant that happened here. And this particular sign has a guy's name at the top, Hoagie Carmichael. And underneath, you can read this. Born and reared in Bloomington, he is considered one of the most important American songwriters of the 20th century. He goes on to talk about an Academy Award he won, a number of the songs that were award-winning and bestsellers, and in the middle, the middle of the 20th century, I mean, he was something. Songs like Stardust and Georgia on My Mind. But in 1939, Hokie Carmichael wrote a song 
that became one of the popular songs, not just in the, the, the middle of the 20th century, extends even now to the 21st century. Artists from Frank Sinatra and Peggy Lee and Linda Ronstadt and Nina Simone and Diana Krall and Carly Simon, the list goes on and on and on of the number of people who have sung this particular song, recorded it, and sold tons of albums. Yet it's this song that some have described as being one of the saddest songs ever written. The reason is it's about relationships and about how we are tempted to close ourselves off. The name of the song, I can do without you very well. You hear the sarcasm in that? It's painful sarcasm. It's a determination. I can do without you very well, thank you very much. But it goes deep. It's haunting. But it's also a song that can be life-altering when we dig into it. Get along without you very well. It's a defiant statement. It's a painful statement. It's a statement that has tons of baggage, tons of history. And we all know that relational hesitancy. But we also know the lingering suspicion that we're not going to be able to. Did you hear the word except come up a few times? When Hoagie Carmichael wrote that song in 1939, it was based on the clipping of a poem that a friend of his, another student at Indiana University, had given him 15 years earlier in 1924 from Life magazine. And it was a poem that was attributed to a poet that was identified only by his or her initials, J.B. Somebody that was reeling and just didn't want to even identify themselves, perhaps. But now that Hoagie was so popular and on radio shows, through some announcements on the radio, they finally discovered the identity of the person who had written it 15 years earlier. Her name was Jane Brown Thompson. She died the same year that the song came out. I never met Jane Brown Thompson. In fact, uh, I wasn't even born when she was around, and even my parents hadn't met before she died. But I still feel like I know her. Because we, we all have that relational tentativeness. Maybe at work or in a, in a romantic relationship or uh, some other family relationship or friendship, we've all got the shrapnel. Whether it's betrayal or slander or rejection. The list goes on and on, and I say one more with real sensitivity, but sometimes people die on us, and we think, I'm never going to love again because this hurts too bad. And we build up the walls, and that closed posture towards relationships. It's because of the scar tissue that's present that keeps us from loving and we say, I will not love again. Or I'm gonna limit the amount of love. And we think we'll be better off when actually that chokes the life out of us. The summer we talked about having healthy hearts. And when I have a healthy heart, I'm more vulnerable and exposed and I'll experience deeper love but also deeper pain. And a lot of time those two are right together. But if we make the determination that we're not going to hurt, that we're gonna get along well, very well, without these other people, 
It's actually a posture that has its consequences. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, The Four Loves. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. Your heart will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, irredeemable, impenetrable. How can we avoid that? How can we avoid our hearts becoming that hard? Well, the answer to that question is related to another question. Remember earlier when I asked you, why do we just sit around when it comes to investing in the progress of the gospel? Remember that? That was just 10 minutes ago. Remember that? I'm staying here until we get this established. Remember that? Thank you. The two questions are related. Why we don't invest in personal relationships is related to, the, to why we don't invest in the progress of the gospel. Because you see, the gospel is relational. It's incarnational. God didn't do an airdrop of pamphlets. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And the gospel continues to be incarnational through us as communities, large and small, through big church and personal church, through distributed churches. We are to, in relationship, progress the gospel just as we are in relationship to extend ourselves to each other. But the reason that we don't can be addressed by something you'll really be excited to hear, theology. Pretty exciting, huh? Oh yeah. It's an issue of theology that causes me not to invest in relationships, to say I can get along without you very well. Uh, It's a theological issue that causes me to not invest in those relationships. Now, there are lots of different types of theology we can talk about, and this is actually the second request that I'm filling from this summer from some of you is, there's Reformed theology and liturgical theology and patristic theology and historical theology. The, the, The list goes on and on. There's so many theologies out there. If you want to get a master's or a PhD in one of those theology, it's going to, theologies, it's going to take you years. The kind of theology that I want to deal with, the one that keeps me from investing in relationships and the progress of the gospel, is what I call plumbing theology. Now, some of you are hesitating right now because you think, boy, it sure sounded like you just said plumbing theology. I did. Now, those other theologies might take you years to get a PhD. You can get your PhD in plumbing theology in just a few minutes. Actually, we're going to give it to you today. You're going to get diplomas out in the foyer on your, your way out. A PhD in plumbing theology can be achieved and acquired simply by learning one statement. Now, it takes an entire lifetime for me to unpack this statement, but to get my PhD in plumbing theology, I just have to learn this one statement. You want to know what it is? Okay, let's close in prayer. Uh, do you want to know what it is? 
Here we go. This is deep. You might have to write it down. There is a difference between a pipe and a bucket. And you guys, I thought you'd respond with an ooh, that's what, you know, something like, let's try it again. To get your PhD in plumbing theology, all you have to do is understand this one statement. There is a difference between a pipe and a bucket. Amen. Now we're talking. So to, if some of you are not quite clear on that, let me help you out a little bit more. There's a difference between a pipe and a bucket. There we go. Now, they're both cylindrical in shape, you know, but you can have short, fat pipes and long, skinny buckets. Uh, so they kind of from the side look similar, but when you turn them on their side, uh, what you see is that a bucket has a bottom pipe, does it? What goes into a bucket stays in a bucket. What goes into a pipe flows through that pipe elsewhere. Are we tracking? I know this is difficult, but try to stay with me. Back when I was a single young man many moons ago, uh, before Arlene and I got married, I would clean my condo once a year whether it needed it or not. I was just very, very diligent about it. And on one of these annual cleanings, I opened the cabinet under the sink and I grabbed the little uh, the sponge that I'd used in the previous year's cleaning. And I had placed it on that cleaning before in a little bucket, a little margarine bucket. And I realized as soon as I grabbed it that the year before, whenever I'd used it before, I had not squeezed it out. Yeah. And so when I grabbed it, it broke apart and just crumbled in my hands. And this protective film was, was broken. And a fragrant aroma filled my apartment that would be consistent with what single guy's apartment smell like anyway. I mean, it was awful. Why? Because what had gone into that bucket had stayed in that bucket and stagnated. Whether or not I am having the posture towards other people of saying, I will get along well, very well without you. Whether or not I'm investing in the progress of the gospel is the difference between a pipe and a bucket because every one of us at all times are predominantly more of a bucket or more of a pipe. And you get a bunch of people together that call themselves a church. It's a very sad thing when two or three gather as buckets to say, we're going to get everything we can from God, but we're not giving it away to anybody, not even to one another. Really, the only noise that happens is when these buckets clang into each other and stagnant water spills out. In fact, some of you are just tiptoeing back into church for the first time in many years. Others of you have stayed away from church for a long time because you know of other people that have been wounded in bucket churches. People that think they're really getting all religious and actually they're just getting more stagnant. But you get a group of pipes together who start receiving from God, but they don't just take it in. They let what they're getting flow to the people around them. And all of a sudden, that gospel goodness 
doesn't stagnate and then turn into something other than the gospel. That gospel goodness flows through and begins to not just change the pipes, but the people around the pipes. And the more they give out, the more that they receive. And it becomes something that's liberating. So what we're gonna do is talk about how to be more of a pipe. Because pipes are active, they're not passive. Buckets are passive. Bucket might just stare at the back of somebody's head every week or so just to pretend to be religious. But pipes are active. They're making choices. They're making investments. So we're going to look at four choices that pipes make. There are tons more, but we're going to stick to four. Four choices that pipes make to maintain their pipeness. Now, a bucket can be a follower of Jesus or can be someone that's just religious. But if a bucket is a follower of Jesus, they're not growing, they're not experiencing the abundance, the vibrancy, and they're certainly not experiencing the beauty of relationship and investing in the progress of the gospel. So we're going to get some insight onto the choices that pipes make from a powerful passage in Scripture. Philippians. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi. It's a passage we could spend months on. We're going to just take the 15,000 foot view, kind of the Larry Walters view. But we're going to take a look at this passage to avoid just sitting around in relationships, to avoid putting up a wall and say, I can, I can get along without you very well. Choice number one that a pipe makes. A pipe chooses unity over isolation. Always. Pipes choose unity over isolation. Philippians chapter 2 verse 1, therefore if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing, in other words if you've received anything good from God, any tenderness and compassion, any common sharing in the spirit, then make my joy complete, Paul says, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and, and purpose. He says, make my joy complete. One of the greatest joy robbers in communities of Christians or religious people, people that may maybe pretend to know God but don't really, one of the biggest joy robbers is bucket tendencies. It can be wounding and suffocating. You can tell when you come into a church, usually very quickly, often it's in the worship. Pipes worship differently. They sing differently than buckets. It's a bunch of individuals kind of staring at each other's head. This is a group of people who've been called um, and they understand they're distributed as well. We unpack, he says, if you've received the love of God, then walk together in unity. Unity is not uniformity, we're not all the same, but we walk together. Pipes, buckets, by the way, they can be isolated, no problem. You put a bucket over here, it's really not going to be any, it doesn't sense any sense, of, there's no sense of loss. Uh, okay, I'm not there, but you know, I'm still a bucket and I'm still getting this all in. But you put a pipe and isolate, all of a sudden the pipe says, who, who can I give to? Paul says, would you guys make my joy complete by being unified? By walking together and whatever you're receiving, you're giving it away. John Chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus, this is the night before Jesus gives his life. He's doing, going through the last minute in poured and exhortations. He says, 
A new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. You see plumbing theology throughout scripture. Uh, we're told to forgive just as Christ has forgiven us. Here Jesus says, I want you to love just as I've loved you. And if I'm not living in unity, I won't experience love as God as much. It doesn't mean God loves me any less. I just won't experience it. So pipes choose unity over isolation. Second choice pipes make on a daily basis is pipes, a pipe will choose you over me. And pipes choose uh, them over us. A pipe will choose you over me. And us as a community of pipes will choose them over us. Go back to the text, verse 3 of Philippians 2. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking out to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, see, buckets freak out at that. Think, if I don't take care of me, I'm not going to get taken care of. A, a, a pipe realizes, you know what? If, if I just keep giving away, I'll keep receiving. There's no stoppage. There's no blockage. Be others focused. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, this is a great hymn of the early church. This is just these verses we could spend months on. But just hear the big picture of Jesus saying, it's not about me. And if there's anyone that could have said, it's, it's not about you, but me, Jesus did not. He said, it's not about me, it's about you. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The King of all creation had the posture of you over me. How can I do otherwise? He says... Go ahead and give. I've, I've placed you on this planet, not just to receive, but to receive and to give. That's your role. That's where freedom happens. That's where vibrancy happens. Second Corinthians, Paul's letter, his second letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old's gone, the new's here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Now, to be reconciled is to be uh, restored in relationship, to be made friends again. Like we were singing earlier, we're, we're, we're friends of God. That's one, part of the, one of the miracles of the gospel. He says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So he, he reconciled us, then he reconciled us, then he gave us this ministry. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Read this carefully. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Do you know what the Greek word for ambassadors there is? Pipes. I'm, I'm kidding, it, it's not, but 
and got you though, didn't I? But it could be. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors. What, what's he mean by that? We're therefore Christ's pipes as though God were making his appeal what? Through us. He says, let it flow. A third choice the pipes will make. It's not just uh, unity over isolation, not just you over me and them over us. A th the third choice that pipes make on a daily basis is they'll choose giving over hoarding. Buckets are all about hoarding. You name it, they hoard it. We're all tempted to do that. Pipes choose giving. Go back to the text, verse 12. Therefore, dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. People I tend to freak out at this passage because we're, we're, we're at, at the heart of the gospel. It's not by works, lest any man should boast. We can't work to, get, to, 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 to earn our salvation. And then here we're told about working for our salvation. No, he doesn't say you've got to work to get your salvation. He says this, read it very carefully. He says, work out your salvation for it is God who works in you. God has worked salvation in, you work it out. In out, in, out. I stop working it out doesn't mean that I lose my salvation, but I stop experiencing the beauty of it, the vibrancy of it, but the, because all the beauty of God's posture towards me is to be given away to other people, to care about those personal relationships and the progress of this good news, not just in my heart, but in the lives of people around me. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 3 verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God grace that was given to me for you. Stewardship of grace given to me, not just for me, 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 but for you. But we get that me, 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 me thing going. Have you ever watched uh, toddlers play with stuff together? They play so well, don't they? I mean, uh, it's just a giving environment. Um, actually, what you don't know is toddlers, just part of being a toddler is to ascribe allegiance to the 10 property laws of a toddler. Here they are, uh, property law number one, if I like it, it's mine. Property law number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Property law number three, if I can take it from you, it's mine. Number four, if I had it a little while ago, it's mine. Number five, if it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. Number six, if I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. Number seven, if it looks just like mine, it's mine. Number eight, if I saw it first, it's mine. Number nine, if you're playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. Number 10, if it's broken, it's yours. There's toddler theology that too many of us ascribe to. I have abilities, I have time, I have finances, I have resources that God has given to me. They are not mine. He's entrusted to them to me as a steward. Paul says God's given me the stewardship of his grace for you. 
So if, if we're going to invest in the progress of the gospel, everything we have, we're to enjoy and worship God in the midst of, but also we give it away. Pipes make a choice daily. Because I'm telling you, tons of blockage happens in my life. Selfishness, plugs of selfishness get in here. And though I look like a pipe from the side, I'm functioning like a bucket. And every day it's choices to say what's mine is yours. To his glory. And the ultimate result is really tied to the, third, the, the fourth choice. It's this. A pipe, yes, chooses unity. Not isolation. Pipes choose you over me and them over us. Pipes choose giving, not hoarding. But fourthly, pipes choose life over death on a daily basis. Life over death. It's what I'm not just referring to heart beating life. It's what I refer to as life with a capital L. I've talked with you about it before and I'm sure I will again. It is at the heartbeat and the epicenter of the gospel. It was at the heart of the gospel proclamation of the New Testament church. This life that Jesus came to give dead men and women who are walking and breathing and still a mago day, but not experiencing the life of God. That's why I wrote the book. Because it's, at the, it's the heartbeat of the good news of the gospel. Listen to what... Paul says, he says in verse 14, Philippians 2, he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. By the way, that's not a superficial statement. You can see from this passage, he's talking about deep abiding heart postures that produce just stagnant stuff like grumbling and arguing. He says, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault and warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Now remember the, the verse I read earlier from John 13 where Jesus said, I want you, to, as I've loved you, you love one another because it's by this men will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. So often churches are known by anything but love. He says, you start having this posture, you're going to shine like stars in the universe against the blackness of a selfish culture. You will stand out. And the early church did that. They were the ones that started caring about those that no one else cared for. There was this contrast. And he says, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So the contrast comes as we're holding firmly to the word of life. Now, there's, a, there's a play in the Greek there. And you're saying, I'm not listening to any more Greek things by you because I use, no, honestly. The Greek word there is a, is a difficult word to translate because it has a dual meaning. It can either mean to hold firmly or to hold forth. So which is it that we're supposed to do? Do we hold firmly on to the life of Christ or do we hold it forth to other people? That's a trick question. Well, yeah, the answer is yes. In fact, you can't do one without the other. If I'm holding on to the life of Christ but not holding it forth to others, I'm not really holding on to the life of Christ. It's become something else. And there's no way that I can hold it forth to you unless I'm experiencing it myself. I can't give away what I'm not experiencing. And he says, as you hold forth that life, now we're talking. And that was, you, you see that over and over, like in, in Acts, 
This life with a capital L that comes out, Acts chapter 5, verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail. This is Peter and his guys who were in prison for preaching the gospel. And he brought them out. The angel says, go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell all the people about this new religious affiliation that's possible. No, tell the people all about this new life. Acts eleven eighteen. when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. You say, well, okay, we were talking about loving others, now we're talking about life, which is it? The two go hand in hand. First John chapter three, verse 14. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Is a bucket loved by God? Of course. Is a bucket experiencing the love of God? No. Can a bucket be a follower of Jesus? Of course, we all have those bucket moments. Just ask my family. They can tell you about bucket moments that I've had. But I, I ask forgiveness from them, from God, and once again say, would you knock out this, this bottom part of selfishness, God, and, and let me love. Jesus says, as I have loved you, so love. As I've related with you, so relate. As I've entrusted the gospel to you, give it away. There's not a person within the sound of my voice who heard the gospel from anything other than a pipe. Maybe it was a pipe that wrote something or spoke something or demonstrated something. We get loved to life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that we might come alive. Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, I've come that you might have life, have it to the full. But it all starts with love. In fact, the foundation of this text is verse one. We looked at it a second ago. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, then all this happens. You ever heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people? Same is true for loved people. Loved people are the ones who love people. When I'm loved, I can love. And this is where a lot of the stoppage is because we don't really grasp how much God loves us. And therefore we become stingy. And we try to hold on, we try to earn instead of basking in the unconditional love of God. Last year, my wife and son introduced me to television civilization. I'm a, I'm a big sports guy, news guy, movie guy, but I'm not a TV show guy. It's just, I travel too much, there's too much going on, can't keep up. So they asked me to watch a TV show with them. I said, no. They said, you have to, it's, it'll, it'll be great, Dad. No. Dad, sit down and watch the show. Okay. It's called The Voice. Yeah, you guys are saying, really? You never watched The Voice? Okay, I told you. I've come into civilization now. 
The Voice is this contest about musical ability and these contestants come on, they perform, they acquire the interest of the coaches, the four celebrity coaches, and then they get coached. If they, if they make it through the first couple of rounds, they, they get coached by that celebrity voice coach and there's this ultimate contest and one comes out at the end with a recording contract and so forth. But the way it starts in this particular night, when I watched the show for the first time, it was called the Blind Auditions. Blind auditions were that you and I, as the television audience, are introduced to this aspiring singer. We find out about their hopes, their dreams, and uh, they walk out on stage before this television audience, and also before a live audience. But between that contestant and the live audience are four big red chairs where these four judges are sitting. In this case, it was Blake and Shakira, and Usher and Adam. Not that it had an impact on me. <laughs> Each of those chairs is rigged with a button. And when you hit that button, the chair will swivel around. So the contestant comes out. The judges don't know who this person is, don't know anything about their story. They're just listening to them perform. And that person starts singing their hearts out. And they're singing with one goal in mind to get at least one of these four celebrity judges to hit the button and that judge will have their chair swivel around and in doing so, they are validating the performance of that artist and saying, I value you, I appreciate you, I wanna be your coach. The most exciting thing is when more than one chair got swiveled around, maybe all four, and then the judges compete with each other about who, who this guy is gonna pick as a coach. The most awful thing was when nobody, none of the judges would hit the button and turn their chair around. I'm yelling at the TV, turn your chair around, this guy's doing a great job, and they're, they're not. And then, you know, when he's done, they all turn around, and, but the message by then has been signed, sealed, and delivered. We don't believe in you enough. We don't care about you enough to, to want to go any further in relationship. And I was watching this. I lost it. Because of uh, a dark thing that raises its head periodically in my life came up. And it's, it's a flawed view of who God is. Because I said too often, I perceive my relationship with God just like that. Meaning, we think God has his chair turned away from us. And if we perform just so, if we get all our religious things in a row, maybe, maybe God will turn his chair around and love us. And in the name of Jesus Christ, under the beautiful canopy of the good news of the gospel, I tell you with no hesitation that God turned his chair towards you before you ever stepped on stage. And you, absolutely. And now your responsibility and mine is to respond to that love, but we don't have to earn it. And you say, that sounds too good to be true. It's why it's called the gospel. That through Jesus Christ, God says, I love you. But that's not where it ends. As he's loved me that way, guess what? 
I'm to turn my chair towards the people in my life and say, I love you. I'm to proclaim the gospel in the same way. But the problem, and some of you know this, maybe you're not yet in the kingdom. And one of the reasons is because of a bunch of bucket church people. But for some reason, you're here today. But so often what our culture hears from the church and what our culture sees is a bunch of Christians with their backs turned. Oh yeah, we'll proclaim the gospel. Jesus loves you. You need to trust him. By the way, just straighten that up. You're not, you're not coming into church like that, are you? Get yourself worked out and then I'll, we'll, we'll love you. May God forgive us for those bucket tendencies. And may he liberate us to love as he's loved us and to no longer sit around and to no longer be closed and say, you know what? I can't get along well without you. For me to experience the love of God, I want to walk with you. I would like every person who is loved by the unconditional love of God to stand right now. Lord Jesus, it's a pretty powerful sight. Men and women that are standing eagerly and some of us hesitantly because we're struggling to believe, is it really true? Is your love really that deep and that wide and that, that high? And we praise you for loving us. It humbles us. It motivates us to invest in each other giving that love away as conduits, not just containers. But I also pray for the communities where we live and work and play, where our distributed churches are located. May we love with the deep, deep love of Jesus. And I ask that right now, you would enable us to, to relish and worship you for that love, not as buckets but may we worship right now and sing as pipes.